This Irish man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. And today is the start of a, a new journey for this show. And I want to talk to you about what I've got planned and why I'm doing what I'm doing. But before I do that, I want to share a story with you. One of the questions that I get a lot of heat on for some of the stances I take on this show, because some people have disagreed with me under the, the prior administration, is why are you so free trade? Why, what is the big benefit that you believe in free trade? What do you think it achieves? First of all, I could give you many reasons about freedom and about not in, you know, infringing on the individual rights of, of people, you know, not controlling them or coercing them to act a certain way or not buy something. But there's a further reason for it that I believe in it because I see the benefits of it. And I want to share a couple of stories with you today. And this is to the credit of the last administration. In my lifetime, the Middle East has always been a quagmire. There's always been a lot of issues. There's always a lot of divisions in it. And with the exception of Iran, I think you're starting to see, in large part because of the last year of the Trump administration, a big difference in the Middle East. And a part of that is because of peace deals and because of trade agreements between different countries in Israel. Why do I think that is such a big deal? Because when we resort to our camps, when we resort to our sides, we automatically believe what we are taught to believe. You know, if you're a Muslim in the Middle East, it's very easy to read the Hadith. It's very easy to read the Quran and very easy to get it bought down in the rhetoric of, you know, the Jews are dirty, the Jews are evil. You know, you know, the, literally the stones will beg you to kill the Jew. That's in the Hadith. That it's always easy to buy that narrative. And if you're a Jew in Israel and you, you've grown up under the, you know, the horrific circumstances of, you know, different wars and, you know, different types of invasion and constant rocket attacks, it's very easy to buy into the narrative that, well, all Muslims are bad. One of the reasons I'm so free trade is because when you actually start trading with people, you start having lines of communication, you start having cooperation, you start having interaction with people, and you'll find that deep down, the vast majority of people are rather similar. So one of the reasons I believe in free trade is if you can get a Jewish person and a Muslim person or an atheist person sitting down and talking together, not talking about their faiths, not talking about, well, my God is the real one and you're, you're going to hell because you don't believe in him. No, but just talking about general stuff. You know, even if it's just strictly purely business. Hey, we have this product and you want to buy it. And, you know, we talk about delivery times and you're ringing me going to go, hey, it's six weeks. Where's my product? Or we have to negotiate over price invariably it might take a week it might take a month it might take a day but invariably some shit check starts hey how are you you'll find out hey have i got a wife have i got a kids you know have my kids just gone to school or have they just left they gone to college we all have similar you know type of experiences we all want the same things we want what's best for ourselves we want what's best for the company we work for we want to make more money we want to you know have more responsibilities maybe if you're ambitious you know you want to worry about your kids you worry about your partner your wife or whatever it is you know, there's a lot of things that we share in common. We want our kids to have a better life than we did. That's not a, a Christian thing or an atheist thing or a white thing or a black thing. We all want that, the vast majority of us. So when you have free trade, it breaks down those barriers. And that is why, you know, credit to the Trump administration for playing a role in it. But where you have these peace deals and you have these trade deals that you start opening the lines of communication. And all of a sudden, then who knows what can happen? Now, let me tell you another story. About Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is a very 
indelicate situation, and I don't want to get into the, too much of the politics about it, but it's mainly bound along the lines of, if you're Protestant, you want believe in the Queen and you want to be part of England, and if you're Catholic, you want a united Ireland through the two counties. Well, if you go back to where they started doing these peace dates, you had two people who literally knew of each other for about 30 years who had never spoken one word to each other. You had Ian Paisley, the Reverend Ian Paisley as the Protestant and the member of the DUP, and you had Martin McGuinness, who was the, the head of Sinn Féin, you know, the public representative. He had, he had ties to like the, the IRA and killing people and different things. You literally had two people from very different camps who literally hated the ground they walked on each other. And then it came to where Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, the Irish Prime Minister, the English Prime Minister, and Bill Clinton getting involved and trying to get them to start talking to each other. Well, a lot of that happens without them ever talking, getting them to the table. They never acknowledged each other. They would just walk down the side of the street. They'd be like, yeah, I don't want to talk to you. And by chance, certain things happened. And it all involved around a car ride going to an airport where they both had to sit in the same car. Guess what happened? It started to break the ice. They started to talk to each other. They started to figure out that, yeah, I'm Protestant and Martin McGuinness wasn't exactly a Catholic, but are the strongest Catholic. But you had different breakdowns. They were both from Northern Ireland, very proud Northern Irishmen. And all of a sudden you found that the culture was pretty much the same. There's actually a movie about this if you ever want to watch it. It's not historically accurate of the breakdown because no one knows exactly what was said, but they started talking to each other and they found common grounds. But also they understood that they could continue living in the past or they could look to the future and have a better future. And eventually that's what they did. And the peace talk, the, the, the Good Friday Agreement and loads of different agreements came out of it, that they started respecting that, you know what, I'm Catholic, you're Protestant and vice versa. We start respecting each other. When you start having conversations, things change. You don't automatically have to buy into the hope or to the ideals of, well, my camp says you're this. Like, you know, let's not try and justify it. Let's just believe it. Let's stick into our corners. Why did I share these stories with you? Because look at what's happening in your nation. Your nation is in a lot of trouble. And it's going through a point where it's going to be so easy to get into camps. It's always been a type of tribe over the last, what, 20 years because of politics. But I think those tribes are going to change if people are smart and actually open up. Because what you have is always had that, you know, left, right, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal breakdown. But what you've seen over the last four, eight, 12 years, you can put a pinpoint of whatever you feel is when it started. Because we'll all have different opinions on when it exactly started. But it's getting more and more hostile to each other. It's automatically getting where I can't have an agreement with you or I can't even have a conversation with you if you vote differently to me. You're stupid. You're dumb. You're naive. How smart is this? What is the end game to this? If people are smart, they'll actually start changing that and kind of go, we're never going to achieve anything if we just keep resorting back to our tribes. Even though our tribes right now, if you believe in the left or right or Republican Democrat tribes, they're kind of different. Because I know a lot of Republicans who are very uneasy about being on the Republican camp. Likewise, I see a lot of Democrat friends I have who kind of go, we're not going to say it out loud, but we don't like AOC. We don't like the, this, this unity talk. Let me give you a snapshot of a story that broke in your nation this week. A story about how someone actually is paid to write a column for a newspaper. And it was the horrific title of that this person, you know, has a holiday home and beside them there's these Trump people. 
And they, you know, they're ardent supporters of Donald Trump, but they don't believe in Q. They even believe in Blue Lives Matter. And like, I, I've not said, like, they should rot in hell, right? Like, you should never, they should be cast aside. But this person committed the heinous crime of plowing because of a snowstorm and he plowed their drive. And actually, according to the writer, did a really stand up job. Now, if you read that column, I think it's in the LA Times. I read it earlier in the week. You literally don't see any give on that person. They're like, well, you know, I, I, I might, you know, might give them away, but I ain't going over there with a box of cookies or, you know, a bit of baking. I'm, why would I reciprocate a good deed? Because I'm not going to give them forgiveness. What you're seeing is from the you people who want unity, they really don't. They want submission. You're starting to see this over and over and over again. And if we make this about camps, if we make this about sides, if we make this like going back to the equation of where I started about the Middle East, if we make this about Jews and Muslims, we're never going to make inroads. If we start actually talking to people and start having conversations, and yes, disagreeing on some things. I have Democrat friends who we disagree. We will never agree on tax policy. We will never agree even on abortion. But guess what? We can still have the lines of communication because they don't want people silenced. They don't want people shut up. And for all my friends who are, one time I defend them and they say, well, why don't they ever be more vocal? Would you? Would you? Look at what, 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 if you just put yourself in the mind of a Democrat right now and you're actually a traditional blue collar Democrat, why in God's earth, what's the incentive is for you to speak up? Obviously, you will do the right thing. Yes, okay, but put that aside in their vested interest. If they stood up and said, well, look, they don't speak for me. I don't like Joe Biden. Guess what's going to happen? They're going to get slaughtered by both sides. Republicans aren't exactly going to welcome them. You're still a Democrat. We still find reasons to hate you. And they'll get destroyed by their woke friends on the left. We need to change the demographics. The same way that peace deal in Northern Ireland changed the demographics and broke down barriers between Protestants and Catholics. The same way these peace deals will potentially break down barriers between um, Jews and Muslims and, and you know, non-atheist people. The same way if we actually talk things and discuss things, we can break down barriers that have been built up over the last four, eight, 12 years in America. It's not about sides. It's not about tribes. It's about principles. Which brings me to the changes in my show. Going forward, this show is going to be basically the same format. There's going to be one monologue at the start where I'm going to talk to you for 12, 15 minutes about a big story of the week. And then I'm going to interview someone. I'm going to have a conversation. But one of the things I'd ask you just to think about is I'm, today's guest is Hannah Cox. We disagree on a few things when it comes to the death penalty. I did a lot of research for these interviews, and I'm going to start to, uh, showing you some of them. But we speak for about 35 minutes on the death penalty. I have pages. I could have spoke to her for about four hours. The reason I'm doing these interviews is because I'm going to make them about topics that you don't always hear a lot about, but that there's a give and take. Because if you look at the debt penalty, how many times do you actually see a discussion about it in debt? I say I could have spoke to her for about four hours, maybe five, because I had that many notes. As I went through the interview, I was like, I haven't got time to talk about this. I haven't got time to talk about this. I'll probably have her back on if she's open to it. But now if you look at this and look at the TV, Look at your favorite, you know, network. What they're broken down into 12 minute segments. How do you have a substantial debate about any topic in 12 minutes, 14 minutes, or maybe it's on radio and it's 16 and a half minutes? How do you, how do you do that? Do you ever see that? Do you ever see a give and take? Or do you just see the snippets where I'll have my talking points and you'll have yours and we'll just get on and yell at each other? Or do you ever see it on social media? How do you have a conversation about the debt penalty in, you know, on Facebook? 
people would just jump in and start going, oh, you're this, you're that, and insults. Or on Twitter, you have 280 characters. How do you ever do that? And then, by the way, this is not just about the death penalty. Name any policy. Debt taxes, abortion, life, cryptocurrency, the role of government, the Constitution. Do you ever see these conversations in debt? Well, you're going to start seeing them in this show a lot more. I'm going to spend as much time as I can talking to them and breaking down the issues, talking to them about principles, but also understanding that, you know what, you're going to see people and there's going to be times you're going to go, why do you have this person on? We don't agree. Exactly. Just listen to them. But at the end of the day to see, are they some type of the enemy? Do I hate them? Hey, listen, I disagree with Hannah on some things. Uh, is it a, a case of, hey, you know what, they're, she's evil. She should be banned from society. But also, in this interview, you're going to see, because I recorded this before the, the interview, before I did this monologue, I ask you a very stupid question. Ask yourself, if that situation had played out on Facebook or social media, and it is a stupid question because we were just so ingrained in the conversation, my brain just said something to me because I'm not a big person, not the most knowledgeable on criminal justice reform. I was like, hey, what about this? It was a stupid question. The minute I said it, I was like, oh, that's a stupid question. But look at how she deals with it. How do we deal with stupid questions? Imagine that situation, because it's obvious in the interview. Imagine that situation playing out on social media. Ask yourself, how many people would have dealt with it as kindly and as nicely as Hannah dealt with it? That's what we need to do. We need to stop jumping on each other or just pounding each other into the ground and start having debates and discussions. And I hope you enjoy this because today is the start of a new journey and I look forward to joining you and I hope look forward to your interactions. And if there's people you think you'd love to see me discuss issues with, please, by all means, let me know because this is your show as much as it is mine. But today we start a new journey and I, for one, am excited and I hope you will be too. So I'm now joined by my guest, Hannah Cox. She is she works with the Conservatives Against the Death Penalty. Um, she's a, a author on one of my favourite websites. I always, always don't go a day without reading it, fee.org, and you should check her out. She's also been a Newsmax insider. She's a political insider. She's doing a lot of work around the place when COVID gets opened up. Hannah, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Good to see you in person. Absolutely. It's been a while. So I wanted to talk to you about the death penalty because one of the things that I really get frustrated in your country, and, and this is around the world, is where people would look at me and you and kind of go, I'm, I've got some reservations about the death penalty, but you know, you can put me in the pro-death penalty camp. And then other people, would, you're obviously on the opposite side, and they kind of go, well, clearly you should hate each other. You know, I should start flinging insults at you, and you're you're dumb, you're stupid, you're you're naive, you're you know. When when I was I was talking to someone about when I was having you on, she kind of go, oh, she's probably a flaming liberal, you know, one of these weak-hearted people. You know, you hear all this stuff. But as I was doing a lot of research, and um, which we'll get to, because I actually have, I've actually one of the things I've found in my research doing for this show is I've got a, a thing which I'm very uneasy about and I don't know how to rectify it, which we'll talk about later on, but there's no discussion. But I think we'll actually find a lot of common ground, like where we, you know, some of the cases I've, I've actually followed your work on. I agree with a lot of your assumptions, even though we kind of go from a different point of view. So one of the things I wanted to start with is I always try and break things down to the principle. So to see where exactly we disagree. Um, so the first thing I would say is, so if someone does a crime in society, as a general principle, do you think there should be a punishment? 
Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, I used to come from your camp. I wasn't always anti-death penalty. And I think that you're absolutely right. It's something that we don't really discuss. It's a policy mm -hmm. people have a knee-jerk reaction to, or they feel like, okay, I'm in this camp. This camp traditionally feels this way about this punishment. So I have to be in lockstep. And they don't spend a lot of time actually looking into it. So yeah, I agree that there needs to be accountability when harm is committed for sure. Okay, so then we've agreed on that. So then the next principle, kind of looking at from my camp, quote unquote, is okay. So then there should be a punishment. Then, as a general principle, should the the kind of uh, punishment fit the the severity of the crime? As a general, yeah, principle. I think that's a really backwards way of looking at crime, actually. And as I've gotten okay. further into the scientific um, factors that lead to violence, as we've learned more about the human brain, and as we've really progressed in our understanding of what can be done to intervene and prevent violence, and what can be done to actually cure it and try to rehabilitate a person when it has occurred, I think the framework that you have to start to approach crime and violence under is one in which first we prioritize what works, right? And what are the priorities under what works? Well, first, we want to prevent it from happening, if at all possible. Our current mm -hmm. system gets nowhere close to addressing that very key component. Instead, we look at what happens after crime occurs, and we tend to try to be very punitive towards the person who commits crime, which actually can, can compound some of the uh, initial elements that actually underlie violence. You know, there's this dichotomy narrative out there that you have people who commit harm, and you have people who are harmed, and that there's no kind of water in between them, right? They're, these are two totally separate people. But when you start actually working in the criminal justice system, you find that that narrative falls apart quite quickly. Most people who commit violence were actually first victims themselves. They're typically people who have been harmed, they've been violated, they've had violence committed against them, they've witnessed murder, they've lost family members to murder, and so they actually play multiple parts in the system throughout their lives, often first as victim, victim's family member, and then repeating the cycle of violence or harm that can produce more violence down the road. So what we need to look at is how do we intervene in that cycle of violence? How do we actually first um, identify somebody who might be at risk? And what are the things we could do to start to try to intervene before that violence occurs? The next question we need to ask is once somebody has committed violence, what can we do to actually treat the underlying causes that created the problem in the first place. And if you s simply throw somebody into isolation, if you lock them up without a key, if you give them no kind of mental health treatment, which is often a component, no kind of drug addiction treatment, which is often a component, and no sort of real treatment for the underlying trauma that they've incurred themselves um, as a result of violence, then what you typically see is that can start to compound itself and create uh, worse and worse cognitive functions in the mind and in the human brain that actually makes it uh, more likely that they might continue this cycle when they are released, if they are released, instead of addressing the underlying issue, trying to cure it, produce a more whole person that can then be released back out into society. And so I think that there's a lot of the messiness and the nuance in violence and crime that oftentimes when people are talking about these issues, they've been nowhere near the system. And that used to be me. You know, I used to have a lot of opinions on crime and violence, but what did I know? I'd never been up close. I didn't know anybody who was a victim, much less a perpetrator of crime. Now, having worked in the system and having worked around these populations, I can tell you that there is real restorative um, abilities for these people. Most of them can actually be cured. Most of them can find redemption. And I still think that they should be held accountable. But what does the victim need in that situation? What does the victim's family need in that situation to get healing? And that's the other question we're not asking. So often right now, victims and their family members are showing up day after day after day at state legislators, 
in courtrooms, in hearings, and they're saying, this system doesn't work for us. We're not getting what we need. It doesn't help us to pay $30,000, $90,000 a year just to incarcerate this person or a million dollars plus to execute this person. What we really need are better victim services. What we really need is restorative justice. And so I think that's how we need to start to approach criminality. Okay, so to a lot of people who just heard what you just said, this and this is my frustration with my my side on the right because we, we we're kind of both. I don't use the terms so I hate all the labels, but conservative, libertarian, limited government. Me and you are in pretty much in lockstep with those. Is because our side, quote unquote, has become so weak in principle that if someone listened to what you just said, everything solution is government. Literally, I can, I can just hear all my liberal friends going, yeah, she's right, yeah, we do need to get into society, yeah, we do, and we need to stop, the. there's poverty, if you go to all these problems, the link is all poverty, we need more welfare problems, we need more of this, and all of a sudden, because we've become so away from free markets and limited government and, you know, freedom actually been the answer to a lot of this, you know, you know true innovation and creativity, what, how do we solve that? How do we change that? Or yeah, what would some of the solutions that you would put forward? That's a really great point. And I think, um, you know, coming from my former stance on many of these issues, I had a very big government stance, right? I wanted the biggest government. I wanted government to be able to kill people for crying out loud. Um, and when I really started to step back and look into the data and the actual um, information we had about how the system operated, it sort of surprised me in hindsight that I had had those views because I thought, wait, I believe in limited government because I know it gets it wrong, because I know it harms people, because I know it's biased and full of error. And like, even when it's well-intentioned, it will hurt people. That's why it needs to be so limited. Um, yeah. And, you know, as, as somebody who, who really recognized that in our system, for some reason, I like exempted the Justice Department and did not think that it also operated in that exact same manner. But it does. Um, the beauty, I think, in a lot of these criminal justice reform solutions is that many of them actually take government out of it. And they really want to look at, um, one, pushing more for localized control. And that's a, that's a narrative that's gotten really out of hand in this country, where people always look to the federal government to solve everything, even around criminal justice reform. You know, so many on the left are like, yeah, they're like, what is Joe Biden going to do? And I'm like, it's a small percentage of our prison population that's held federally. Most of them are at the state and local level. That's where most of our issue is. And so we need to have localized solutions. You can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. And what you need to do is start to involve the community and the practitioners who are already doing this work. There's a lot of really great, innovative nonprofits, charities, ministries, social workers, people who are trained and working around mental health, working around drugs, working around gang de-escalation, who are already doing this, that we could start to say, hey, how about we take some of the government elements out of this and start to put this into the hands of the people who are already seeing really good um, effects. You know, if you look at the recidivism rate for people who come out of prison, barring no private intervention, barring no ministries getting involved, it's really high, right? It's almost 50% go back within three years. If you look at the recidivism rates of people who go through many of these programs, it drops to under 10% sometimes. So we see an incredible result. And what we ought to be doing is decentralizing and actually trying to involve members of the community. I think we should be working with victims, family members to create more customizable plans, you know, really sitting down with them, which I often do and saying, what do you need? You know, is it, is it therapy services that you need? Do you need to have mediation with the person who harmed you? Do you need restitution from this person? Um, do you need, are you still in danger? Are you in an at-risk situation? You know, are you in a high-risk community? Do you need help changing the locks on your doors to make sure that you're safe moving forward, et cetera? Um, we're not doing any of that and we're wasting so much money. That's what's really staggering when you get into the system is how much money we're spending for such dismal results. Um, and especially the death penalty. The death penalty is the most expensive part of the criminal justice system on a per-offender basis. 
it costs at least a million dollars more to have the death penalty at minimum than it would life in prison without parole. It costs that much on top of not being a deterrent effect. So what that really represents is an opportunity cost. That's money that we're not spending on things that do work to prevent crime or on solving more crimes once they occur or on actually giving victims and their family members what they need to create healing and move forward after crime has, has happened. Okay, so let's start at the most severe cases and work our way back to where we mean you'll find a lot of common ground and a lot of stuff you've just said. So for you, is there anything that anybody can do that you will be like, they totally deserve the death penalty? Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I think that's the wrong question, to be frank. It doesn't okay. really matter if somebody could deserve the death penalty. The questions we have to ask in a public policy is, does the system work? Does mm -hmm. it work without harming more people? The answer to both of those is, without a doubt, absolutely not. It's an abysmal failure. We see that the death penalty not only does, is not a deterrent to crime, but actually tends to correlate with higher rates of violent crime because of the money being wasted on it that isn't going to things that would actually work to make us safer. Flat out, it doesn't work from a dollars and cents fiscal conservative um, approach. Secondarily, okay. we know that one person has been exonerated from death row for every nine executions. Now, I mm -hmm. want to quantify that and say it's really hard to be exonerated. The state works um, overtime to try to uphold its cases, trying to get new DNA tested, trying to get a new hearing, trying to have new evidence introduced. That is a really big uphill battle that without the help of outside pro bono groups like the Innocence Project coming in and helping a defendant, they likely will not be able to get forward. And so there are many people that are killed every year who don't have that out extra outside help because there's just not enough capacity for everybody to really have the kind of representation that they need. We know that it kills innocent people. And then on top of that, we know that many, many, many victims and their family members come out and say, this does not help us. It actually perpetrates the harm that we've already incurred. It makes it worse. This is not what we need. When I've worked at state capitals to overturn the death penalty uh, in two states so far, I've seen one victim's family member show up in favor of keeping it compared to 40 plus who have showed up to get rid of it in each of those states. So the, the dynamics are really, um, are really skewed there. And so whether or not somebody could do something to deserve it, perhaps, I think that's a theoretical argument. And I want to deal in the reality and the practicality of it. So, and by that metric, some, so like, let me give you one story that I think, you know, it's up for debate. You actually might be involved, you know, in the state. Dylan Roof, guy, white supremacist, you know, you can say all the adjectives that he is, goes into a church and decides for whatever reason just I'm going to go kill a load of people. And he does. And he's now, you know, got the death penalty. For people like me, and I, I'm educating you if I'm wrong, I kind of, so if I see a case where there's one person died, I'm probably with you 99% of the time, unless it's really barbaric and heinous. When it gets into multiple, you know, and, and we can talk about any case you want. Dylan Roof is obviously, as someone who talks about Martin Luther King, I get mocked every because I talk about Martin Luther King and, and racism so much because I see it from, you know, I'm the minority in my country, not from a skin color, but on an opinion. I'm literally on my own. And Martin Luther King inspired me. And I talk about it. That's easy. That should, for me, that's no brainer. But if you look at the Vegas shooting, I know I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to say this, but the Orlando shooting, because they were all gay people, you know, you see all that. Um, you know, Sandy Hook. These are cases for me that if there's someone involved in it, it's a no brainer for someone like me to go, look, I'm sorry, no. Where am I wrong? Well, you're wrong in the sense that, you know, we're going to single in on the one case you brought up just for time's sake. But Dylan Roof, the victim's family members have said over and over they don't want it. Right. Okay. So why are why is your injustice worse than theirs? Why should what you need outweigh what they need in this situation? I think that screwed up from the very beginning. Secondarily, Dylan Roof will never get the death penalty. The state doesn't have the drugs. He's in South Carolina. I think he might have actually been 
um, given the death penalty federally. I'm not sure there were two. There were two no, cases. It was, it, was, it was life in prison at the local level and federally it was the and death then penalty. Federally. Okay. So regardless, he's never going to get the death penalty. We are going to spend an excess million at least, probably more since it's at the federal level, to symbolically give him a death penalty sentence. Instead of actually going out and taking that excess million dollars and giving it to the victim's family members who might have things they need, like therapy or help getting past this, or in actually solving the fact that more Dylan Roofs might be out there and be preparing to commit crimes like that. It doesn't do anything other than solve this emotional need that we have to give vengeance or justice. And I understand that urge. I really do. You know, I used to think if this happened to me, I would want it. After now seeing what those families go through, they get drugged through the courts, they get drugged through the mud for decades and decades, their loved one's name gets lost, that person becomes a celebrity, their name is constantly in the news because the media loves a death penalty trial, and it gets kind of like he's lifted up as a hero status, it then encourages other people to go replicate what he's done if they have um, mental health issues or if they have, you know, sick ideations where they think this is a way for me to, you know, have immortality or be a legend in this way, and, and it does nothing to actually solve what we want to stop, which is the violence, and so it's it's a, it's a heinous crime. It's horrible. But again, is it is it worth spending that money, taking on that opportunity cost, not making society safer, and then still risking and knowing that you will kill innocent people in the process? Now, I don't think Dylan Roof is innocent. I don't think there's anything to suggest he is. But many, many people on death row are. And the country and the government has proven that it's incapable of carrying out the death penalty without killing innocent people. And so if we're not getting a deterrent effect and we're taking on all this extra risk and all this extra um, detrimental side effects, there is no point in doing this. And then on top of that, you're disrespecting the victim's family members. So a lot of people then would, would, would counter that with the argument that so he gets, you know, because the prison system, because of parole and stuff that, you know, there's a chance. I don't know what age he was when he committed the crime, but like there's a chance he's going to be out before he's 50. There's not. That's, I mean, that's just an uneducation around the system. And I encounter it a lot. It seems many people don't really understand how the system works. There's life. There's life in prison without parole. There's the death penalty. And then their sentences beneath life. If you get a life sentence, perhaps, perhaps you might get out sooner. Maybe. Okay. If you get a life in prison without parole status, that means exactly what it says in the title. It is life in prison without parole. You're not getting out. there Unless you're found innocent, unless your case is overturned you're in prison for the rest of your life. If you get the death penalty, you're probably spending life in prison without parole anyways, but we're going to say we gave you the death penalty and spend an extra million dollars to kind of have that symbolism out there. Okay, so then another argument that I've heard a lot doing my research on all sides of it, because for me, my stance is simple. Um, um, if it's like one, no, I'm, I'm not really interested, unless it's really barbaric or something. If it's mass, that, that's where I struggle. And I, I mean, that's what would put me in the pro-death penalty camp, where I look at these cases kind of go. Now, obviously, I didn't know what you were saying about Dylan Roof's case, where the fam if the families are going to go, we don't want this. But that doesn't surprise me also, because I followed that coverage and I spoke about it on, on the show at, at the time, where I saw like that was, that, that was such a chance to be ripe for a lot of bitterness at that time. And, and I was amazed. I, I held it up as this is America, the America I love, that you have this absolute amazing horrifically bad grievance and then amazingly people just like the Amish you know where literally they, 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 all they were short doing was the, I don't remember that case in, the, in up in Pennsylvania I think it was where they literally went to the parents of the person who committed the murder and literally gave I'd be kind of going that's a bit much <laughs> that's where I need to be but on mass case I, I really struggle because one of the arguments that I would hear is but 
what happens if that person's in prison and they get a chance to talk to fellow prisoners? Is the idea of putting someone, I don't mind saying, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but someone who's a really evil SOB in a prison system that might be around different inmates or have the chance to interact with them and maybe influence and share his ideas. And they're only in for three to five for, let's say, armed robbery. And all of a sudden they go, I just talked to this guy, Dylan Roof, he's onto something and then gets out and acts. What would you say to that? Yeah, well, I think that actually is a risk for anybody going into prison. You know, that's one thing we often see is that early on, people start to go into prison for petty minor crimes. And as they meet more people, they typically start to increase in their level of criminality, right? Especially if they're someone who's a drug user, you know, they might get tossed in for something as simple as smoking marijuana, but then they meet new people to do drugs with. They start finding new places to buy drugs before, you know, if they're selling drugs and it just keeps escalating, right? Um, so I think that's always a threat. And that's one reason that we actually need to really think about some of the negative repercussions of mass incarceration. Um, I think that's one reason we need to think about who do we actually incarcerate? Why do we incarcerate them? How do we um, administer incarceration in a way that reduces harm and doesn't um, in, in some inadvertent way end up harming the community or people inside of it more? And so um, I do think that's a risk, but I think that it's a mistake to assume that people on death row are more likely to be a, a worse risk of that than people throughout the justice system. And that comes down to the fact that many people, like you've sort of um, gotten to, and, and you haven't said this expressly, but what I've gotten from what you've said is that you have a mentality that people who get the death penalty have somehow done a crime that's worse than other people. And that's actually not true. If you look at how we allocate the death penalty in this country, it comes down predominantly to the location where the crime is committed. So 2% of counties- That's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah, 2% of counties bring the majority of death penalty cases. To date, every execution since reinstatement has come from less than 16% of counties. So you can look at, at death row populations in a state, compare them to the life in prison parole populations, or even to people who don't get life in prison without parole, say they get 17 years. And you can find almost identical crimes between the two. And it's just one person was in this district and one person was in this one. Um, it's very, very arbitrary. And it really doesn't in any way show that these people are in some way intrinsically more violent or prone to committing violence than people um, who are in the general population. And then on top of that, who are any more primed to it outside? I want to remind you, we only solve about 60% of homicides in this country year in, year out. We let a lot of homicides go. Um, there are a lot of people out in society who have committed harm and who have committed murder. Um, the next leading components for who that determine who gets the death penalty after the location of the crime, uh, another big factor is the socioeconomic status of the defendant. We typically see only very poor people get it if you can afford private representation, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to get the death penalty. And then the race of the defendant and the victim come into play. We see the number one leading combination of cases on death row are a black defendant with a white victim. And it's important to keep in mind that that's not the leading cause of criminality. Most people are killed by somebody they know. So most crime that we see is race on race. So most white people are killed by another white person. Most black people are killed by another black person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, given the fact that white people are such a larger population in this country, most homicide is white on white crime. But the leading cause or combination on death row is a black defendant with a white victim. And so we really tend to prioritize these cases, um, which I think is highly problematic in and of itself. But it, it speaks back to my former point of there is nothing inherently more violent or dangerous about people on death row. There's nothing to indicate that the crimes they've committed are any worse than other people's crimes. Um, it really is sort of a luck of the draw. So this is where, as doing the research for, for this interview, my head literally, and I'll be honest with you, because I, I can't reconcile this. I'm a 
you know, again, I don't do labels, but I am a huge federalist. Like I am, I'm literally the person like, you you know, if you watch my show, I always say you've, it's Congress has 18 clauses of power. That's it. President has no power. Federalism, everything is up to the states. Yeah, that's who I am because I'm, you're the exact opposite. You know, I'm Irish. So I've studied world history and I've seen you're the exact opposite to how every other place is set up and every other place kind of has its major faults. But what America has issues, if you follow the constitution, you don't. But here's where the quandary is. So I'm the guy who's like state, 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 states, Congress. I'm never the guy. You never turn to me and say, should the government do something? Because the answer is always no. (laughs) I read this stuff and I'm researching the death penalty and kind of go, she really is a postcode lottery who gets the death penalty. Only 2% of counties give it. And in my brain, because it's always thinking, it's kind of going, is this the first time you could literally have an argument for giving that power to the federal government? And my body is like, no, no. No, still no. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't reconcile it. Or I will reconcile it eventually. But to the to, to the postcode lottery, how how do we get over that? You know, that you know, let's try let's find a lot of common ground where like what well, the other thing, you know, that we can talk about is as I was going through, I was on a website, I, I let Google be my friend, I found the list of executions of people who have died and um, who've been, you know, murdered, is a lot of people have only got one victim. You know, it's literally, you know, so and so killed so and so, one person death penalty by lethal injection or electrocution so uh, to me then i'm kind of going okay so what how can we get over this where you know that it isn't such a postcode lottery i don't i don't think we do and that's one reason i became opposed you know the death penalty was originally banned in this country in the 1970s i think 1973 at the u.s supreme court level and it was banned because it violated the eighth amendment's protections against cruel and unusual punishment not because they found it was cruel, but because they found that it was so arbitrarily and randomly applied that it, it violated the cruel and unusual component. They actually wrote in the decision, it is as unusual as being struck by lightning. It's a total lottery. Uh, it also also was very racially biased at that time. So they banned it. And then states took the next like three or four years and they basically came in and they added aggravating factors, mig- mitigating factors, all of these things that were supposed to provide better guardrails to ensure it was only allocated to the quote, quote, worst of the worst, um, no longer arbitrary, no longer racially biased, and that it didn't uh, kill innocent people. But we've had, you know, four or five decades worth of data now to look back on and see that it operates in the exact same manner. That's proof that government is fallible. Government is inherently fallible. There is no way to create a utopian government where they're capable of running things perfectly. And for that very basic principle, we should oppose them having the power of life and death. Um, And I think that there's many reasons for why it operates that arbitrarily and randomly. And I don't think that they can necessarily be um, legislated out. I think you have a couple factors um, that play into that. One, most counties can't afford to have death penalty trials. They're crazy expensive. You know, there's this idea that that the death penalty is so expensive because of how long it takes. That has very little to do with it whatsoever. It also has very little what to do the, with the execution method. It what actually is the cost? The trial. 70% of the costs come from the trial alone because of the bulk of evidence you have to produce because they've added these you know, aggravating, mitigating factors that are supposed to protect innocence, that are supposed to keep it from being arbitrary. So it's very expensive to have a death penalty trial. It's a lot of hours worked by everybody involved. They're all on the public dollar, public defenders, um, prosecutors, judges. Um, You have more witnesses. You have a longer jury selection process. You typically would have more evidence being tested, let's hope, um, given our innocence rates. All of that makes it really expensive. The trial is actually four times more than the appellate process. 
So most counties cannot afford to spend an excess million dollars per case to have a death penalty trial. They need to solve more crimes. They want to make sure that there is actually justice for all. They're trying to really address everybody who's been harmed. And so they recognize this is a huge time sap and money sap on our system. And most prosecutors move away from it because they're smarter than that. You have a few prosecutors who hold almost unilateral decision-making power over whether a case goes forward to death penalty or not. Um, you have a couple prosecutors or district attorneys who are elected in this country who continue to um, pursue death penalty trials over and over and over, typically because they're the kind of people who are trying to get their name in the news. They then want to go on and run for attorney general or governor or senator. They're people like Kamala Harris. They're people like Joshua Hawley. You know, you see this like very stereotypical pathway for a prosecutor to follow. And, and so that's, that's who's mostly doing it. Um, not only do you have those bad incentives and not only do you have the financial restraints, but I think on top of that, um, what you really get into is unsubconscious bias. Like I think that people, um, when they're making these decisions, they might think that they're making them based on data, but we see consistently that again, they choose to pursue this when there's a black defendant and a white victim. I think that shows that there's some inherent bias and people aren't always aware of that bias within themselves. That's something that we have to make ourselves aware of and constantly check ourselves on. The system does not put any of those checks or balances in place. We see juries consistently exhibit subconscious bias. They oftentimes vote for harsher sentences for people who have darker skin complexions, even within um, defendants who are black. We see people with darker complexions get harsher sentences than people with lighter sentences. So I think there's a lot of subconscious bias that plays into this that, you know, that's, that's the fallibility of humans. We're both Christians. We both know about the fall of man. We both know that um, that is inherent in humanity. You can't legislate that out. And so that is, again, it circles back to our core principle of why we need a limited government. We know yeah. all these things to be true. We know that we can't legislate around it. We know that these things can't ever be totally eradicated. And so government has to be really limited and certainly shouldn't get the power to kill people because we know it will never do it perfectly. Okay, so then another place that I think one of the things doing the research I found, again, that we'll find a lot of common ground is, you know, letting not letting evidence in, having issues with DNA, because DNA has come on leaps and bounds even over the last, what, two, three years compared to what it was 30 years ago. That's where I think, you know, on, on those type of issues, I think you'll, I don't know any conservative, libertarian, even liberal who would kind of go, no, they don't have that right. What can how, can you tell me some example? Some of the most egregious examples you've come across of a district attorney not acting in good faith, and you know, not allowing that that people can. Uh, and bear in mind, yeah. you have time. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, DNA is really interesting, and I do want to point out that it has been so important for helping us to discover wrongful convictions and prove them and try to exonerate people. But it's not infallible itself. We actually see that within wrongful convictions that have worked themselves out of the system, uh, about 45% of those have actually involved the misapplication of forensic science. We have seen labs that are testing only partial DNA. And so they're coming in and they're giving testimony to juries that this is more conclusive than it is. We've seen straight manipulation. Uh, we've seen some lab technicians go to jail for manipulating evidence and coming in and specifically lying to jury members. Um, but more common is that there's just mistakes in the lab and they aren't as conclusive as they think they are. They kind of hold their science in too high of a regard and it ends up being wrong. Uh, we also see that there's been a lot of forensics that have been used to put people to death that we then find are total junk science. Things like bite mark evidence, things like shaking baby syndrome, things like microscopic hair analysis. These things were once thought to be conclusive and were introduced in trials to convict and even kill people and then were found to be utterly junk science. And even once that's found, nothing happens to go and comb back through those cases and try to work those things out of the system or give them a retrial. 
So it's a huge problem. Um, and I think due to CSI and like law and order, a lot of Americans, and this used to be me too, have this idea that like, well, now we'll get it right all the time because there's DNA. No, we still only have DNA in about 10% or less of cases. It's not that common to have full DNA um, portfolios or um, profiles. And even when we do have it, there's a lot of error around it. So um, it's definitely something to keep your eye on. If you're ever on a jury, like don't hang your hat on it, right? It's, it's a useful tool. We should, we should consider it along with other evidence, but it's not something that should be conclusively trusted. Um, as far as prosecutorial misconduct, where to start? <laughs> um, prosecutorial misconduct. No, the government's our friends. Oh, I won't <laughs> hear that now. Come on. They're just after you the truth, man. That's all they right care here. about. <laughs> they just want justice. You know, like Camilla, you know, when she was when she was doing her thing yeah. in California, she was all about the justice system. She goes no to better climbing. Than the Constitution real tight. <laughs> yeah, she just wanted justice, man. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm going to give you the most egregious example um, off the top of my head, but there's it's a dime a dozen. There's so many instances of it. I think it's off the top of my head, something like 19% of wrongful convictions involve prosecutorial misconduct. It's important to know that nothing happens to prosecutors when they uh, are, con are uh, convicted of, of Sorry, doing oopsie. this. Sorry, right? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a slap on the hand, like maybe your trial gets reversed. Right. Um, and so there's this case in Mississippi um, and the guy, the defendant's name is Curtis Flowers. Um, I believe he's innocent. He since has been released. We're waiting for the exoneration to come through. I think he will be exonerated. Um, this guy, he's black. There were white victims in the case. This happened... 20, 30 years ago, probably in Mississippi, multiple victims. Um, there was nothing tying him to this case. It was completely circumstantial. And he ended up getting in the crosshairs of this prosecutor in Mississippi. I think his name's Doug Evans. And Doug Evans is just like your typical good old boy bad guy, right? Like he's got so much power. He's in this little Mississippi town. There's no checks or balances or scrutiny on him. And so over a period of decades, uh, this man begins to prosecute Curtis Flowers for this case. And he keeps getting a conviction. But every time, once we get into the appellate process, the higher courts are like, oh, you did some really bad things to get this, right? We find that he's striking black jurors. He's being really racist in his jury selection process. You're not allowed to do that. That's definitely jury stacking and it's it's illegal and you can't do that. Um, or, you know, they're finding out that he coerced witnesses, that he bribed witnesses. Bad, really bad. Um, and it keeps, you know, this keeps happening. But all that happens every time he's found to have committed violations, Brady violations, it just goes on and on. He's withholding evidence. He's planting people in the jail to try to get false confess or get confessions from um, jailhouse informants. I mean, it goes on and on. This guy's just like totally corrupt and like is just out in the open with it. Um, the case keeps getting overturned. But all that happens when it gets overturned is Doug Evans gets to prosecute the case again. Now, keep in mind that each case is about a million dollars more. So each time this gets overturned, the trials where most of the, co of the costs come, he's sucking this little town dry where he's at financially. Oh, can I ask a very dumb question here? Double sure. jeopardy. No, not double jeopardy. Double Why? jeopardy means that you're found innocent of the crime oh. and you can't be prosecuted for it again. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. I was, I was thinking, how can you keep retrying the same trial over and over and over again? Yeah. And around trial four or five, it gets really bad. The judge actually starts um, teaming up with the prosecutor. They're threatening to like put this member of the jury in jail for like not being compliant. It's getting really crazy down there. Important to remember, most judges, something like 90% of judges actually were prosecutors first. So they are naturally more biased towards prosecution in their case. Um, so this is going on and on. Finally, what happens is a podcast gets a hold of this case. And they're like, hey, y'all, this is going down in Mississippi. Did you know? And the nation kind of freaks out. We're like, what? What? This is wild. 
Um, finally, seventh, the seventh trial makes it way, its way up to the Supreme Court. They finally overturn it. There's a new attorney general that steps in in Mississippi. Um, they basically find that the prosecutor needs to recuse himself, that he's no longer, finally at this point, he's no longer trusted to keep prosecuting this case. They think there might be some ethical issues with it. So it's up to the attorney general whether she wants to prosecute the case. She declines to. The case stands as overturned and Curtis is released. We're now waiting for him to be exonerated, like I mentioned. Um, but that's just, you know, that's something that honestly, I don't know that those results would have even transpired had it not been for an outside podcast calling attention to what the system was doing. This kind of thing happens all the time, every day. Um, there's so many issues with prosecutors in this country. We, we really need prosecutorial uh, reform. They're, they have qualified immunity, so they're hardly ever held accountable for anything. Again, there's no checks and balances on them. Judges are typically former prosecutors, so they're in their corner. And defendants have very few abil um, abilities or rights to really push back on any of this. Um, and so do de defendants, or sorry, defense attorneys. They also have very few recourse to really stand up. They're less funded than the prosecutors. And, and they're trying to go up against the government and the prosecutor works on behalf of the government. So it's this really unequal, unfair system. Okay, so because we got to talk about a couple of other issues before we finish up on this issue, for someone, whether you, you know, regardless of what you think on this, what resources would you give to someone saying, listen to this show? Kind of, I want to learn more. I want to know what Hannah was saying. I want to know more. I want to educate myself. Where would you kind of say these are one, two, three good places to start? I've got a couple. So one, if you don't want to just listen to me, there's this really great resource called the Death Penalty Information Center. It's a nonpartisan. They don't even take a stance on the death penalty. They just gather research and accumulate information on the death penalty. So if you want to do a really deep dive into a lot of studies um, and then the findings of that data, that's a really great resource, Death Penalty Information Center. I think it's dpic.org you can go to. Um, also, you can, of course, go to my organization, which is Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty. We're at conservativesconcerned.org. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, and then I've been writing about these issues at my Newsmax column for over two years now. And so I've written very extensively about these problems. My column is called Life and Liberty at Newsmax. You can Google that. And I've got probably, you know, 30, 40 articles um, that dive into many of the specifics we've talked about here today. Awesome. So when we come back, we are going to talk to an issue that I'm really passionate about. And I want to hear from Hannah how we're going to solve it. Twitter Freedom Disciple on Facebook. Hannah, you're on Twitter as well. What's your Twitter handle? Hannah Cox 7. Hannah Cox 7. What's the with the number 7? Is there a significance? It was just, no, it was just the, the smallest number available when I made my account. <laughs> so who's Hannah Cox 6? Is she good or bad? <laughs> I, I would like to know because actually 6 is my preferred number um, and, and okay. she doesn't seem very active. I also looked up just Hannah Cox and it doesn't seem very active. So I'm like, can you guys just relinquish these handles to me, please? <laughs> So the issue I wanted, the obviously I wanted the big issue was pro-life, pro or uh, pro death penalty issue. But for me, there's whether I think people will when lit, watch this and kind of go, there's no way anyone could say whether they even if they disagree with you and said she's wrong. You're clearly educated. You're very well spoken. You're very articulate. You're clearly smart. Even if you complete, she's wrong on everything. But you, you know your stuff. We've watched and I've watched this from behind the scenes and obviously I've in prior, prior jobs I've I've been a managing editor, I've been head of radio and I've had a lot of female writers and talent under me. And I see firsthand, like people say to me, I joke about it. The abuse I get, oh, 
you're fat, you're ugly, John, are you a virgin? If not, you're going to die. It's all mute. There's usual stuff. Oh, you're bald. It's, I laugh at it. You know, I actually <laughs> encourage people who hate me to send me the best insults they can. My best insult, you might actually appreciate this because it doesn't make sense. The funniest one was I got a book called A Bible-Thumping Communist. Yeah, that was my reaction as well. <laughs> but I've seen the inboxes of females. I've seen of my, you know, co-workers. Mine is not even 1% of the vileness that women get. I've seen it. I've been involved behind the scenes of saying, you need to go to the police. You need to involve it. We've had stories breaking over the last couple of weeks. And I don't want to particularly talk about those stories, but like returning points with uh, Young Americans for Liberty, an organization I, you know, I've done a lot of speaking with. Um, where there's a lot of really bad stuff happening. And it happens on the left as well with the Lincoln Project and different things. One of the things that I always say is I want more voices. You know, if I totally disagree with you, I'm never going to, you need to shut up. I'm always, no, let them talk. And if they say good stuff, I'll say, hey, this is why you're wrong. And here's here's the other point of view and have that debate. How do we get to a point? What, what was your experience getting, you know, becoming into the limelight, quote unquote? And what would your advice be to people who are kind of going, I want to get in the limelight, but I'm afraid? especially if for to towards a young girl? Yeah, that's such a good question. And thanks for highlighting that. It, it is a big problem and it is scary at times. Um, I, I would say that one of the top things I'm reached out to about behind the scenes is other women wanting to know, like, how do you handle this? How do I handle it? How do I, you know, what do you do to like not let it impact you? And it does. It You can't say it doesn't impact you. I definitely know, like, if I have a bad day on social media, I feel it. It, it impacts my mental health. And, and I'm a very secure, self-confident person. And I do have a very thick skin. And still, it can start to really weigh on you and just kind of make you irritable or angry. Um, it, it's hard. And I do think women are treated worse. I think they get more of a brunt of it. I think they incur a lot more abuse online. Um, and there's not, I don't know that I have an easy solution for it. You know, I have a lot of safeguards I've put in place for myself. I'm very fortunate to work for companies that have my back, um, where people are targeting me or hurting me or harassing me or, or calling the company about me, which I've had happen multiple times over the years. You know, they have my back. They're going to defend me and stick up for me. They do a lot of work to make sure I'm not doxxed to protect my online security. Um, I have had a friend who has been murdered in the past two years. And so that's made me hyper aware of my security and of my whereabouts I carry. Um, I advertise that I carry. So everybody knows if you try to come up on me, I'm probably going to shoot you. <laughs> so I think that that message that's is That's why you're against the death career. penalty. Now I know why. Gotcha. <laughs> the truth is out. <laughs> yeah, I believe in self-defense. Absolutely. Uh, I'm teasing. Um, I'm teasing. So, no. But it's it's hard. And, and I think that so often, you know, especially in liberty circles, we talk all the time about like, there's not enough women here. Why aren't there more women here? And it's like, because we're not protecting women. We're not looking out for them. And when, when you hear some of these stories around YAL and around uh, Turning Point USA, that was a really hard couple of weeks for me because I've also been very involved with YAL. And I also have been at many conferences and thought like, wow, there's not many women here. But I sort of felt a bit of um, guilt, I guess, over not connecting it and being like, well, why are there not more women here? Is it because they're being abused? Is it because like there's people in power who are actually harming them or protecting people who are harming them? Um, and I think moving forward, that's going to really change my mentality in those spaces and, and how I start to uh, address that, you know, as someone who's gotten a bit more prominent, who's gotten a bit more of the limelight, who has a bit more of a platform to speak out on some of these things. I think there is a responsibility to try to hold others in leadership accountable. I think there is a responsibility to look out for women and to ensure that the spaces we're creating not only are, are safe. I mean, that should be the bare minimum, right? That you're not going to get raped or assaulted at our events. Yeah. Like, good grief. Um, but even past that, that we are that we are people and we are um, 
uh, working at places that are elevating women, right? And that we are looking to help younger women elevate their voice, that we're championing them, that we're standing up for them online. You know, I can't stand when I see those twit men come out and call men who stand up for women online white, white knights. I'm like, I love white knights. Bring them on get your douchebag, you know, butt out of here. Like, yeah. absolutely not. Women love that. We love men that stand up for women. And I, I very much appreciate that. I think it's good to encourage women. You know, I often get messages from you and from other men that are like, Hey, hope you're hanging in there. I'm sure it's tough. Just want, you know, I appreciate your voice, you know, just kind of balancing out the abuse and, and kind of vitriol that women can get. Um, but I think there is a lot more. It's always harder for guys. I will say this in defense of guys. Cause I, I do feel this even with people like you is, there is this mentality of you're a single guy, you're a good looking girl. I'm just messaging it to hit on you and whatever. And I know a lot of guys <laughs> who would say stuff and they're kind of, she doesn't need to hear from me though. You know, I'm just, she just think I'm stalking or whatever. And it's like, there is this feeling because I know guys as well who are genuinely good, who are kind of going, just genuine going, hey, I'll just message you. You doing all right? You okay? Everything all right? And then it's kind of go, she's going to think because she's single, I'm single. And then, and we just, we have this conversation in our heads and <laughs> it's, it's never a real conversation. You never have this in public, but it's just in the back of your head, you always have to be careful, especially when you're in the public eye as well. You kind of go, you have to be careful because, you know, you hear all these stories and you kind of go, I don't want to ever think anyone like, I'm not hitting on you. I'm just saying, okay, you're all good and stuff. And you have to be, you know, because we've become so sensitive. But I want to just uh, share something with the, the audience who might be privy. You're kind of going, John, you're making this stuff up or whatever. I one of the, the most disturbing parts I was involved in was with a young girl who started writing and she started writing partly with us in another organization and everyone automatically goes to um, the violence. Oh, you're going to get assaulted or you're going to get murdered or stuff. She was really upset because someone had, I don't know how they did this, but it was really graphic and what they did was basically got a picture of her performing a certain act on someone else and it was totally fake. And, you know, it was just, she was like, and it was, it wasn't, it wasn't consensual. Um, and I was like, she was like, oh my God, you know, if my mother saw this or, and she was literally going to quit. And I'm like, no, you can't, you know, if this, you know, I, I told her to take a couple of weeks off and tried to help her, but, you know, you have this type of trolling and stuff like that. And the other part that frustrates me, because I know, especially this is more from the writer's side than the podcast, I'm sure you're familiar with this, is they don't read your article, but they just, you know, you're a moron. You're kind of going, I didn't even say anything about this. And you're kind of going, right. what did you read? Because that ain't in it. Um, and it's, you know, then there's obviously the sexual stuff. So what would you, is there anything you just, is it just ignore it? Or, and the other question is, what can people like me who are guys kind of go, who are decent guys kind of go, we've got your back. What would you say to those? Yeah, I appreciate that insight. And I think, you know, to your earlier point, women know the difference when they're being hit on and when a guy's being supportive. I've never once thought, oh, they're checking on me. They're hitting on me. Really? No, that's crazy. Um, and I always really, I really support it. And oftentimes um, I've had really great male mentors, you know, in the space who have who've looked out for me and reached out and, and checked in on me from time to time. So I think that's a wonderful thing to do. Um, as far as, you know, that kind of abuse, I, I don't know what the laws are in Ireland. I think it's important to know your Oh, it's all in America. I don't oh, in America. Do so in America, you know, you have some rights around this kind of thing. Uh, there's, you know, really strict penalties for revenge porn or for issuing those kinds of images. So you always have the ability to hire an attorney to contact the platforms um, and to reach out to um, try to stand up for yourself and have that kind of image removed. Um, I also think, you know, as men in those spaces, holding those kind of guys accountable, you know, the public has a lot of sway over people's behaviors. And I, I don't like cancel culture, but I think there's a difference in cancel culture and accountability. And that's a conversation that's kind of missing oftentimes, you know, 
cancel culture is like, I'm going to go digging through your past and looking for one thing you did one time to try to ruin your life. But when you have somebody who's actively harming somebody, that's you know a huge violation of the non-aggression principle and, and is violating somebody. I think that there is a place for cancel culture in that moment and for pushing back on that person, for contacting their employment, for trying to make sure that those who have accountability over this person know what they're doing and to stand up for that person. And sometimes that comes from the person themselves. But when you're in that kind of moment, when you're being attacked like that, it really means a lot to have others come alongside you and also speak up and go, no, this crosses a line, you know, to that person, to others that might have authority over that person, et cetera. Um, but to not let that kind of thing stand online, because I think that they are used to being able to post that kind of thing, make those kind of remarks, make those kinds of jokes and not get pushed back. Right. And if they start to recognize this isn't a space for that, at the very least, hopefully they will leave that space and no longer um, surround you. I also, you know, for smaller incidents, when we're not talking about actual crimes, like what that sounds like to me, um, but when we're talking about smaller incidents, just bullying, delete them, block them, mute them, get rid of them. I don't know where this idea comes that it's like, you're thin skinned to block a troll. No, why would you deal with that? It's already hard enough being in the public eye. It's already hard enough having um, debates and, and having the mental exercises with genuine people who are intellectually honest. If somebody's being a troll, if they're harassing you, block them. You'll never think of them again. It's beautiful. And you'll, they'll probably think about you every day for the rest of their lives. Because I, I, I agree with that. Because I, I, yeah. for the first five years on Twitter, six years, I, it was around when Trump got in, maybe the first year, I never blocked anyone. You could say, and I, I wouldn't engage with you, but I, I just, yeah, whatever and stuff. And then I was just like, because I always wanted to be, I try, I'm a Christian, you know, I always think, you know, even if you're, maybe you're having a bad day and you're just insulting me and, you know, you know, to next day might be different or I could convince you to my way of thinking because I'm, you know, I'm the grand demon or whatever of freedom. Um, but now the last couple of years, I'm just like, block no, just go away. I just, I just don't have the time. It's just don't have the time. Just leave. So I encourage everyone to block. Um, right. Listen, thanks so much for joining us for for talking about this again. Where if people want to find your work, I know even newsletter. Where can people find you, engage with you, and work? And if they want to support your work in your organization, where can they get you? Yeah, I'm all over the place, and I'd love to connect with people. I'm at Hannah Cox Seven on Twitter. I'm uh, my public page on Facebook is Hannah Danielle Cox Seven, so it's pretty easy. Uh, I also have a vodcast called Based with Hannah Cox. It's available on YouTube, on my Facebook, on iTunes, and on Spotify. I'd love for people to check that out. And then I also have a Substack, so HannahCox.substack.com. If people want to connect that way, you they can find you anywhere. And I, I strongly I'm recommend you checking out your podcast, or your podcast, because. It's really good. I was, was binge-watching it last night. So, and just different things you're talking about, democratic socialism and different things. And it's really good. So it's a monthly podcast. Check it out. It's about 40, you're about 35, 40 minutes. So I, yeah. I strongly recommend that. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Freedom versus freebies. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn. On the Blaze Radio Network.